Welcome to this week's episode of Ask the RD with your hosts Laura Schoenfeld and Kelsey Mark Steiner, staff nutritionist at chriscresser.com. Laura is a registered dietitian with a master's degree in public health and Kelsey is a registered dietitian with a master's degree in human nutrition and functional medicine. Laura and Kelsey will be answering your nutrition related questions on the show. So remember to submit your questions through the online submission link at chriscresser.com. Before Laura and Kelsey come on the show, I want to remind you that this is just general advice and should not be used in place of medical advice from a licensed professional. Now let's begin. Hey everyone, welcome to this week's episode of Ask the RD. I'm Laura Schoenfeld. On the other end of the line is Kelsey Marksteiner. How are you doing today, Kelsey? I'm doing well. How about yourself, Laura? Good. I uh, passed my RD exam, as people may be aware, so I'm very happy about that. And now I get to be one of the uh, the Ask the RD RDs. So. Yeah, awesome. That's so exciting. I, I hated that process of going through the those study materials, but um, you know, it's all worth it in the end. So you must be pumped that you're actually done now. Yeah, it's funny. I thought I was going to get maybe not less busy, but I didn't realize how much more busy I would be as soon as I passed the test. But now it's like full on career mode. So yeah, uh, but I'm enjoying it. It's nice to be able to decide what I want to do and not have to Sorry, my, my audio just cut for a second. But anyway, so I guess we should start with our questions. And the first question is for you, Kelsey. Awesome. How do I get enough calcium on a paleo diet? Okay. So first, I want to point out that, you know, there were a few of you that asked this question in our forum. So thank you so much for submitting it. It really, really helps us to know what questions that you guys still have lingering so that we can answer those specific questions. So... As a lot of you probably know, calcium is really important for bone health. And what I want to talk about is that calcium, you know, why calcium isn't the only thing you need to think about when considering bone health and why as a paleo eater, you're probably getting more calcium than you think you are. So there are a few other things to consider when we're talking calcium. And first is your intake of the other uh, or of some fat soluble vitamins like A, D, and K, specifically K2. And I think it's pretty fair to say that for those of us in the ancestral health community, we care a lot more about getting those vitamins in the diet than the average person does. And I think we're pretty successful at getting them in. So if you're eating things like organ meats, particularly liver, um, things like lard, grass-fed butter, and maybe even some cod liver oil, you're way ahead of the average standard American dieter in terms of the fat-soluble vitamins in your diet. So let's talk a little bit about why those vitamins are so important when we're talking about calcium and bone health. So the, the fat-soluble vitamins are crucial for the deposition of calcium into bones to strengthen the mineral density and to fight fractures. Vitamin K2, for example, activates a protein called osteocalcin, which attracts calciums in, calcium into bones and teeth. So basically, without K2, the calcium you're getting has a difficult time knowing where to go. Also, things called matrix GLA proteins, or MGPs for short, need vitamin K to function, and their purpose is also to help calcium get where it needs to go. So our arteries are one of the places where we definitely don't want calcium, and these K2-dependent proteins are essential for moving calcium around the body to where we actually want them, and not in the arteries. And that's why 
a lack of K2 can contribute to heart disease development because arteries can start to become calcified when calcium ends up there instead of our bones and teeth. Now, in order to make osteocalcin and matrix GLA proteins, we need vitamin A, D, and of course, vitamin K2 to kind of activate them. And vitamin D is also required to activate calbindins, which are calcium binding proteins in our intestinal cells. So that means that if we don't have enough vitamin D, then we're not even absorbing all the calcium we are eating because those proteins that take the calcium from our gut to other places in our body aren't even activated. So hopefully you can understand why we really need all of those soluble, uh, fat-soluble vitamins, A, D, and K2, to use calcium effectively and get it where it needs to be. So this is, you know, before we're even talking about Oh, you know, the sources of calcium in the diet is just that we need these other vitamins to make sure that any calcium we're actually eating is getting to where it needs to go and getting absorbed in the first place. So of course, you'll want to make sure that you're getting those vitamins in your diet through, you know, your lifestyle um, and, and your diet, of course. So vitamin D, obviously, that's a lifestyle one. So getting some sunshine is a really good bet. Um, or if you're like me right now and living on the East Coast or somewhere where it's pretty cold right now, you may want to consider supplementing. And of course, you can take cod liver oil um, or eat liver for both some vitamin D and vitamin A and some K2 as well. So K2 is also high in things like natto and eggs, but a great source of it is cheese, particular, particularly grass-fed cheese. And I think that's probably a good segue into the types of foods that are high in calcium because I'm sure most of us know that dairy is a really good source of it. And if you're someone who doesn't tolerate dairy, you know, we'll talk about some non-dairy sources of calcium in a second, but if you do tolerate dairy, it's obviously a wonderful way to get in not only calcium, but some vitamin K2 as well. For myself, for example, I really don't do well with fluid milk or even yogurt a lot of the time, but I can tolerate cream, I can tolerate cheese, and even low lactose kefir perfectly fine. So I choose to, to incorporate those into my diet. And if you're someone who can tolerate some forms of dairy perfectly fine, then I think it's great to include that in your diet if that's something you want to do. If you're not eating dairy products, you know, there are a lot of paleo-friendly foods that provide adequate calcium. Sardines and other bone and fish, that's probably my favorite one. I think that's a really, really excellent source of calcium. Um, and then, of, of course, the leafy greens, so spinach, bok choy, collards, kale, Swiss chard, all of those green leafy vegetables. Um, and then nuts and seeds, particularly sesame seeds, are great sources too. The other thing to consider is that a high-protein diet has been shown to increase the absorption of calcium. So if you're concerned with getting enough, um, making sure that you're eating enough protein and even a high protein diet is a good idea too. Also, by not consuming grains and foods that are high in anti-nutrients like phytates, we end up actually absorbing much more of the calcium we consume. Since phytates bind calcium, we don't end up absorbing it. So basically, in your gut, you know, you eat something that has calcium, but you're, it, you also ate something that has phytates in it, and that those phytates bind onto calcium and you'll just pass it out of the body without absorbing it. So by eating calcium in the context of a low anti-nutrient diet, we'll actually absorb a lot more of it than someone getting more calcium than us, but on a, a standard American diet where they're eating grains and 
legumes and a lot of things with anti-nutrients in there. So I really think that if you're getting adequate fat-soluble vitamins and eating you know, green leafy vegetables and some bone and fish and nuts and seeds on a regular basis and also eating enough protein, that's really all you need. Of course, if you tolerate dairy, it's a really good way to get more calcium in your diet, but I really don't think it's necessary as long as you're doing all of those other things and making sure your fat-soluble vitamins are in, in a good place. I do you know, wanna mention that, since I think this is probably a, an add-on question that people might have about this topic, that I pretty much only suggest getting calcium from food as I'm very wary of calcium supplementation. And this is because studies have shown that calcium supplementation increases the risk of atherosclerosis, which is the hardening of the arteries. And I would imagine that this is because when people are just taking calcium by itself, you know, they're not really concerned about the other fat soluble vitamins, especially if it's just a calcium supplement, it doesn't have anything else in there. Um, and because of that, you know, the calcium might not end up where it's supposed to be which is of course the bones and teeth, and instead ends up in the arteries as we discussed before. So I just wanna mention that because even for people that I'm really, really concerned about their calcium intake, I try to get them to get it through food with a strong focus on those fat-soluble vitamins. And of course, you know, weight-bearing exercise and getting uh, adequate sunlight, those are also very important for bone health too. So I hope that that helps to answer this question because I know it's a big one and it's a one that um, a lot of people have, especially when they're newer to paleo and they're not, you're not quite sure, you know, you basically hear that dairy is your biggest source of calcium and maybe the only source, source of calcium in the diet. So if you're taking it out, you know, where are you going to get your calcium from? And of course, if you tolerate dairy, great, you know, you're, you're probably going to get enough. But if you're someone who doesn't, then you just really want to pay attention to your intake of fat soluble vitamins and then making sure you're eating some green leafy vegetables bone in fish, nuts and seeds on a regular basis to get some calcium in, but know that you are absorbing probably more than you think because you're not eating things that are high in anti-nutrients like you were on a standard American diet. Anything you'd add there, Laura? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a very good overview. Um, I, I would suggest that people try to aim to get at least 600 milligrams per day mm -hmm. from their diet, which is a little lower than what the RDAs are. I think Generally, the, the RDAs are around 1,000, yeah. maybe a little more for women. But, um, you know, those RDAs are based on a diet likely pretty low in those fat-soluble vitamins that we were talking about. So, um, you know, if people are getting adequate vitamin A, vitamin D, and vitamin K2, then I feel like 600 milligrams per day should be enough. And that said, if people run their diet through some kind of analysis or, you know, if they have a dietitian look at what they're eating and it turns out they're eating less than 600 milligrams per day and they really can't eat foods regularly that have high calcium amounts. So say they have like, you know, maybe they don't tolerate dairy or maybe they can't eat a lot of green vegetables because they, you know, they have IBD or something mm -hmm. like that. Then I do think potentially supplementation can be helpful in certain cases. Um, again, 
it's only to get you up to that 600 milligram mark, and that's another issue is that a lot of these studies, they were you know, going well above 1,000 milligrams per day. Right. So when you combine that with no fat, oh, no attention to the fat-soluble vitamins, I think it's pretty clear why there was um, you know, calcium deposits in the arteries. But again, this is one of those situations where ideally you want to be getting it from food, and you don't need as much as the you know, American government says you need on a regular basis, but... Don't feel like, you know, you can go with just 400 or 500 milligrams per day and get away with it because it really is important to make sure you're getting at least enough. You know, you don't have right. to overdo it. And certainly it's not one of those supplements that I think people should be taking unless they really have an issue with getting it from food. And if that's you, then definitely work with someone to figure out how to go about supplementing in a way that would be beneficial because there's a lot of... Um, other minerals that are important as well with bone health and also things like um, weight-bearing exercise and that kind of stuff is really important to help make sure that calcium is getting put into the bones and not just floating around your bloodstream. So there's a lot of different ways to ensure bone, good bone density and um, certainly calcium is one of them, but it's not the only factor. So exactly. I think it's important to pay attention to, but again, like Kelsey said, if you're eating a pretty well-rounded, ancestral-inspired or paleo diet, you should be okay, but it's good to kind of like check in with yourself and just make sure you're not just completely missing those nutrients. And one other thing I wanted to mention is that Chris actually just wrote an article about the dangers of a vegetarian or vegan diet, and one of the sections actually discusses calcium and um, there's actually some research talking about the bioavailability of calcium from vegetables. And it turns out that when you compare certain leafy green vegetables to just the calcium in milk, mm -hmm. um, it would actually take multiple, multiple servings of a green vegetable to get the same amount of calcium as one cup of milk. So I think the example he used was... Um, it was either spinach or kale. I want to say it was spinach, and it was basically like you would need to have 16 servings of spinach to equal the amount of calcium, of bioavailable calcium that you could get from one glass of milk. Right. So that's something to be, that's something for people to be aware of if they think they're getting their calcium from leafy greens, because as Kelsey mentioned, with the same issue with grains as there is with leafy greens, there's a lot of anti-nutrients unfortunately in green vegetables that can actually block the absorption of calcium so that includes phytates and oxalates and if you're trying to get all your calcium from those plant foods you're going to probably either not be absorbing it as much as you think you are or just you know you're gonna have to be eating a lot of it right so. it's pretty tough and you know that's I think it's important to bring that up this is a great point Laura and probably you know even for that person it's going to be hard for, if, if you are a vegetarian, it's going to be hard for you to get kind of on a high protein diet, which has also been shown to increase the absor absorption of calcium. So I agree. I think on a, you know, vegetarian, vegan diet, you're going to have a really hard time getting uh, that calcium up. But, you know, even for someone who's eating meat on a paleo diet, like, you, like we were just talking about, you know, the leafy greens can be tough to get it all from there. So, and even, you know, all of the, the, the vegetarian sources. So, nuts and seeds, you know, for example, sesame seeds are pretty high, but again, you know, nuts do have some of those anti-nutrients that we're talking about here. So it's not a perfect system, but you're going to be, you're already much better off by, you know, decreasing the amount of grains that you're eating because that's obviously a big source of phytates. And, and if you're eating that along with, you know, at the same time as eating your leafy greens, 
it's going to be that much harder to get that calcium from, you know, what you're eating. So, yeah, yeah it's tough. And I mean, for me, for me, I always think that bone and fish is really the optimal source for people that can't do dairy and also, you know, aren't going to try to eat 16 servings of spinach in right. one day. And that's because the bones are actually, you can just chew them. I don't know if people that are listening have tried like a can of salmon with the bones in or with, you know, sardines that have the bones in, but they're really actually very soft. And the nice thing is with those foods, you also are getting the vitamin D from the fish, Mm -hmm. the fatty fish. So it's kind of like a one-two punch where you're getting both the bioavailable calcium and the fat-soluble vitamin that will help absorb it. So again, you kind of need to make sure you're getting vitamin A and K2 as well, but the vitamin D is is very, um, excuse me, is very important for the actual gastrointestinal absorption of the calcium. So that's my favorite way to get calcium in a typical paleo diet. Agreed. Yeah. One of the things I recommend to, you know, especially if I have women who have osteoporitis or kind of getting to that point, one of the things I recommend to them a lot of times is like a salmon cake where, you know, it's blended up so you don't even notice the bones at all because it's it's all just smushed together into a nice tasty little package that for a lot of people is really great as a breakfast food because, you know, you can make a big batch of them, store them in the freezer, and then just warm them up as you need them. So it's a really nice way to kind of make sure that you're getting calcium on a regular basis there. Yeah, cool. Well, I think that's probably a good amount of information. Hopefully people take a little of that home with them and maybe get one of those diet analysis websites up and just, you know, put your put your 24-hour intake in and just see what kind of calcium intake you're getting. And if you're above 600, I wouldn't be too concerned. But if you're below 600, you definitely want to think about getting more. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Cool. So let's move on. And the next question is for you, Laura. Great. I have read a lot lately about the benefits of eating an ancestral diet. How can you do that if you have a very broad mix? For example, my mother is Scandinavian slash Aboriginal and my father is East Indian slash Italian. All of these cultures have very little in common. Okay, so first, I just want to say that this person's ethnic mix sounds so cool. (laughs) I lived in Australia for a year and a half, so I have a special affinity for Aboriginal culture, and I really appreciate this person's question, partially because of the way Aboriginal Australians eat, and it's, you know, it's definitely a unique diet when you look at, um, they call it bush tucker in Australia, but the way Aboriginal Australians eat either on the coast or in in the outback, but... I think this is a really cool question because, you know, this is something that people are interested in is eating like their ancestors, eating like what their grandparents would have eaten. But when you have family that is from all over the world, it can be difficult to figure out, you know, what your ancestral diet would be. So let's dive into this this person's specific blend of ethnicities and look at what those cultures typically eat. And I'll start with Aboriginal culture because, like I said, I'm a bit partial to anything related to Australian culture. But I will say in advance, I do apologize if I mischaracterize any of these cultures' traditional diets because I'm describing them based on fairly brief amount of research and I'm not personally acquainted with most of these dietary patterns so if you're from one of the countries I'm talking about and I get something wrong please let me know in the comments because like I said I mean other than the Australian culture I really haven't had a whole lot of first-hand experience with any of the other three 
traditional diets. But that said, Aborigines typically have a hunting and gathering diet. So their diet is actually about as close to a strict paleo diet as you could imagine. And before European settlement, Aborigines had a really deep connection with their land and an intimate knowledge of how to survive in a relatively inhospitable environment. And both men and women played an important role in the collection of food. So women hunted and gathered in groups and provided reliable foods such as small marsupials, shellfish, reptiles, insects, honey, eggs, and some plant foods. And then men hunted alone or in pairs for larger animals. So those are the mammals, birds, reptiles, and fish. And their diet was highly meat-based, but it was also supplemented with plant foods such as yams, bush tomatoes, figs, wild orange truffles, gallnuts, and seeds from some grasses. And a lot of those sound like very exotic foods. They're the kind of, you know, plants that are only available in the outback, but they were widely available, so those were a significant component of their diet. And most of their food was eaten either raw or lightly cooked, and they also consumed, obviously, the entire animal because they, you know, couldn't afford to throw anything away the way we do. So that means they were eating organs like liver, brain, heart, anything you could think of, really. And interestingly, Aborigines actually considered the prime time for hunting to be when the animals were fat. So fat from both animals and insects was actually highly prized and shared equally amongst tribe members. And there's an insect in Australia called the witchetty grub that's actually considered to be one of the most important insect foods of the desert. And it was a historical staple in the Aboriginal diet. And so this grub is both high in protein and very high in fat. So the Aboriginal diet, like I said, is probably the ultimate strict paleo diet, and the population was quite lean and healthy before colonization thanks to this nutrient-dense and high-protein diet. So as far as Scandinavians go, their traditional diet is fairly high in fat as well, but they don't they do get some additional carbohydrates in the form of things like properly prepared bread and root vegetables. So their diet was traditionally very high in dairy. Um, they had a lot of sourdough rye bread, lots of fish, berries, apples, cabbages, root vegetables, potatoes, pork, and various game meats like venison. And Scandinavians have actually one of the highest lactase persistence rates in the world. So that means as a population, they can actually tolerate dairy foods much better than most other ethnicities. And they also happen to have the highest consumption of dairy in the world. So this is really one of the biggest differences between a traditional hunter-gatherer diet like the Aboriginal Australians eat, which includes no dairy whatsoever, and you know this is more of a somewhat uh, agricultural diet. So the Scandinavian population also traditionally ate a lot of fish, whether that be cooked or raw and smoked fatty fish. And so they ate foods like herring, tuna, salmon, mackerel, and cod, which we know are very high in omega-3s. And berries were also widely available. So there's a there was a high consumption of antioxidant-rich berries, such as cloudberries, lingonberries, bilberries, red currants, and blueberries. And as far as vegetables go, cabbage and other cruciferous vegetables such as kale and Brussels sprouts actually thrive in these cold Nordic in environments. So these vegetables were a big part of their diet as well. And they're well known for having a range of health benefits, which include detox support and also some anti-cancer efficacy. So Scandinavians actually tend to eat a high fat diet similar to the Aboriginal diet, but it is also somewhat higher in carbohydrate and they had a very high consumption of dairy. So now an East Indian diet is just about as polar opposite to an Aboriginal or Scandinavian diet as you can get. 
This is because they grow a lot of rice in that area of the world and plant foods are actually a big part of the menu as well. There are some amount of religious vegetarians, so animal foods generally play a little bit less of a role in this diet, especially when you're comparing to Aboriginal and uh, Scandinavian diets. So the major form of animal foods that a lot of East Indians would be eating is things like dairy and dairy fat, so a lot of yogurt and ghee, which is a clarified butter. They also use a lot of spices, which have some great health benefits, so they were eating lots of turmeric and ginger and garlic and those kind of things, and they also used a lot of coconut products in East Indian cuisine. And also, being a coastal region, many of those who do not eat animal foods ended up eating a lot of fish and shellfish, although there are several populations in that region that also eat meat and other animal proteins, including things like pork, chicken, mutton, which is an, uh, a type of sheep, and duck eggs. And fermentation is actually used in a lot of the food preparation there. So many of the dishes include some type of rice, some kind of meat or dairy, and also vegetables fermented overnight. So you would have that whole mixed dish and it would be fermented together. So one thing I want to point out really quick is that even though East Indians have been eating rice and grains like that for centuries, that area of the world has actually been recently experiencing a dramatic increase in the rate of diabetes. And I won't go into details, but... I do believe that this is actually more to do with a significant change in cooking oils and an increased intake of inflammatory foods as opposed to the amount of rice and other starches that they eat. That's another story for another day, but I do think it's safe to say that East Indian cuisine is typically higher in carbohydrates and lower in fat and protein than the Aboriginal or Scandinavian diet. So, okay, so Italians. Italians typically also eat more grains and carbohydrates, but that's not to say that they don't also eat a lot of protein and fat as well. They would fall under the umbrella of what we call the Mediterranean diet, but there are some misconceptions about what a true Mediterranean diet even is. So even though the mainstream media portrayal of the Mediterranean diet is a lot of whole grains and low in fat and, you know, either low in meat or even potentially pescatarian or vegetarian, there was actually a lot of meat and dairy consumed in the traditional Italian diet, and they also used a lot of animal fats in their traditional cooking methods. And again, this culture would have practiced nose-to-tail eating just like the other cultures, and especially in the form of foods like sausage and other cured meats that generally would contain all the parts of the animal. And it is true that their diet is high in monounsaturated fat as they use foods like olives and olive oil, and also high in omega-3s because they eat lots of seafood in the Mediterranean region. But they did definitely consume plenty of other meats like pork, lamb, beef, and also eggs as staples of their diet. And the bread that they eat is properly prepared from both heritage grains and also it's prepared by using sprouting and fermented techniques. And there's a great article about the real Mediterranean diet on the Weston Price Foundation page. So I'll link to that in the show notes so people, you know, can get a better idea about the real Mediterranean diet. And so they can realize that our modern conception of the Mediterranean diet is actually a far cry from what people in that region traditionally ate. Okay, so now that we have a general overview of the four ethnic diets that this person's ancestors may have been eating, the question is, how should this inform what this person eats? So it might seem like there's a lot of contradictory dietary practices, particularly in the form of macronutrient ratios. So just as an example, 
Aborigines ate a very low carbohydrate diet, and as a population, they actually tend to do quite poorly on high carb diets, and they typically tend to di develop diabetes very easily, and it's a significant health concern for that population. On the other hand, East Indians consume rice at nearly every meal, and they don't eat anywhere near the amount of protein that an Aboriginal Australian would eat, and yet they were generally healthy when they were eating their traditional diet, even though potentially they might be more prone to diabetes depending on if they're eating inflammatory foods or not. So the question, like I said, is how should this individual eat if they're trying to mimic their own ancestors? Well, so this is where personal experimentation really wins the day because there are many common threads to these dietary patterns and the major differences can be easily experimented with on an individual basis to determine the best diet for this person. So first we can notice how many similarities there are between the diets. First of all, none of these diets are vegan or even primarily plant-based. So they all make heavy use of animal fats, nose-to-tail eating, animal proteins of various types. And that means they're including organ meats, using animal fats like ghee, butter, tallow, lard, or duck fat for cooking, possibly coconut oil, but you know that's still a saturated fat that we consider to be good for you. And this would be a common practice of all of these diets, making sure they're eating parts of the animal, even if they're not eating meat specifically. Second, you'll notice that they all have a heavy emphasis on seafood. So even coastal Aboriginal tribes ate a lot of fish and shellfish. So perhaps for this person specifically, they might actually want to try to include fatty fish and shellfish on a regular basis. And now, you know, I would say anyone could benefit from including lots of seafood on a regular basis, but to be fair, there are lots of non-coastal or, you know, areas of the world that don't have seafood available and they survive just fine. So it's technically not required, but it, it is definitely a good health practice to get into. Okay, so third, the third similarity is that they all ate plenty of diverse plant foods. So it's a really good idea to eat a lot of vegetables and potentially lots of fruit on a regular basis. And also try to make sure you're not eating the same vegetable over and over. So don't have broccoli every single night of the week. Try to mix it up, have Brussels sprouts one night, have cauliflower another night, have some leafy greens or salad or something like that another night. So don't get stuck in a rut with the vegetables you're eating. And you might also want to try eating the common local plants wherever you live if you're trying to eat a more environmentally appropriate diet. So as an example, where I live in North Carolina, sweet potatoes and yams are actually really, really easy to find. And they're um, one of the staple vegetables down in this area. So, you know, eating lots of sweet potatoes for me might actually be an environmentally appropriate diet. Whereas, say, you're living in Alaska, maybe sweet potatoes are not something that grows there. So you might want to look for other vegetables. And including, um, included in that mix of plant foods, you definitely want to use a lot of herbs and spices in your cooking. This is something that's very common in a lot of these traditional diets, specifically the East Indian diet and the Italian diet. They all have their, you know, their certain type of herbs that they use. And herbs and spices have a lot of great health benefits and are generally protective against a variety of chronic diseases. So using cultural spice mixes and that kind of thing is definitely a great practice to help increase the quality of your diet. So fourth, all of these cultures consume some type of fermented foods, and even Aboriginal Australians created a fermented beverage from various types of fruit or honey and flowers. 
So including some type of probiotic fermented food on a regular basis would also be a good idea. And as you can see, the four commonalities of these diets are all general recommendations that are made by those of us who promote an ancestral diet. So these guidelines will be able to set you up for a good foundation for a nutrient-dense and ethnically appropriate diet. And it doesn't actually matter which of the four diets you lean towards because they all have the same basic health properties. But then as far as the major differences between these diets, as I mentioned, they, they differ pretty significantly on the amount of carbohydrates consumed and whether or not dairy is a staple of the diet. So three of these cultures used full-fat dairy in their cooking, and that includes things like butter, yogurt, cheese, or even raw milk, you know, just in a glass. So if this person that asked the question wants to experiment with dairy and they find that they tolerate it well, then I would say dairy is a really good addition to the diet. As we mentioned in the previous question, it's a really good source of calcium and there's a lot of other nutrients in it that make it a good choice to consume if you tolerate it. But if certain types of dairy cause problems, then perhaps you just want to stick to low reactivity products like ghee or make sure that the dairy products you are eating are either fermented or potentially you might want to try raw dairy as opposed to pasteurized because some people find that they tolerate raw dairy better. Or perhaps you decide you might want to skip dairy altogether, which is totally acceptable and you don't need dairy to be healthy. But this is something that only this individual will be able to determine, so they need to experiment with the different types of high-quality dairy and see which ones they can and can't tolerate. So like Kelsey said, she can do ghee and butter and heavy cream and that kind of thing, but she can't do fluid milk or yogurt, so perhaps this person will have the same experience. Or they might have something different, you know, everyone's different with the type of dairy that they can or can't tolerate. So the other major difference, like I said, is the macronutrient ratios in these diets. I wouldn't say that any of them are particularly high carb. I mean, there are some very high carbohydrate traditional diets up in the range of like 80, 90% of calories from carbohydrate. So I would say that they range from very low carb, so let's say around 10% of calories for the Aboriginal diet, to moderate to moderate high carb, maybe around 40 to 50% of calories for the East Indian. So again, this is where individual experimentation should be used to determine the best diet. You may be someone who tolerates carbs quite well, and maybe you feel even best on a higher carb diet that's in that 40 to 50% range, and perhaps it even includes some amount of properly prepared grains. Or maybe you're more like an Aboriginal Australian who is genetically predisposed, oh my gosh, disposed, I'm sorry, genetically predisposed to diabetes. <laughs> and so that means a lower carb and grain-free diet will likely work best for you. So there's really no way to know how an, a diet will affect an individual until they experiment with it. So what I would recommend is that this person just test out different carbohydrate amounts and see how they look, feel, and perform, if I may use a raw wolfism. And so those are generally just an overview. It's a little long overview, but an overview of my recommendations for this person who does have a pretty diverse ethnic mix. And I would also argue that these recommendations can really go for everyone. Even if you're generally one single ethnicity, 
Of course, many of us do have mixed heritage of some sort, especially in America, because, you know, there's a lot of immigration in the past, so a lot of us don't necessarily have one country of origin. So that can make it difficult to hone in on one ethnic cuisine to focus on if you're trying to eat a, a very ancestrally inspired diet. But luckily, as I explained, all of these cultures have some significant similarities that can be used to form the basis of your healthy diet. And then wherever they vary significantly, you can use personal experimentation to determine how you personally feel on the particular diet. So those people who do best on a strict paleo diet may actually have genes more similar to Aboriginal Australians or other hunter-gatherer populations like Native Americans, for example. And so those populations typically don't do as well with a high-carb diet and are prone to developing diabetes. Whereas those who thrive on dairy and some amount of grains might actually have genes more simil similar to those of Scandinavian origin or perhaps the you know, tropical Asian areas where they grow a lot of rice and other things that are high in carbs. So again, I don't want people to be too concerned with the exact ethnicity that inspires their diet. And of course, feel free to experiment or, you know, just obviously feel free to eat ethnic foods that have nothing to do with your genetic background. It's not like it's not a healthy diet. It just might not be, you know, the optimal diet for you on a regular basis. But I think it's definitely a, uh, a smart idea to use your personal ethnicity as a guide to help forming your general nutrient-dense ancestral diet, especially if you come from an ethnicity that does have higher rates of certain diseases that can be addressed by diet changes. Whew, all right, well, that was my answer to that question. And I had a lot of fun researching that, actually, because um, as people may know, I, my blog is called Ancestralize Me, and part of it is because, obviously, I promote an ancestral themed diet, I guess you would call it. But the other part of it is I really, really like learning about food culture and I love eating various ethnic foods. So, you know, some of my favorite cuisines are things like Thai or Ethiopian or Indian or um, just any of those like sushi, any of these foods that are like completely not anything that my ancestors would have been eating. I mean, I'm mostly German and Hungarian and Irish, I think. Yeah. So, Pretty much if I was going to be eating ans like strictly ancestrally, I would be eating things like meat and potatoes basically all the time. But um, I, I feel like as long as you're eating generally foods that, you know, they're whole foods, they're foods that are traditionally consumed by some population on earth. It doesn't have to be the ones that you're, you know, that your grandparents came from or your great grandparents. But like I said, there are some populations, like if you have a strong genetic component of some kind of um, hunter-gatherer population. So if you're someone that's either Native American or Aborigine, um, you might actually want to kind of focus on at least the, the dietary pattern. It doesn't have to be all the same foods because perhaps you can't even get the same foods that your grandparents would, would have eaten. But, you know, trying to focus on the macronutrient uh, ratios and also the, the dairy or non-dairy, depending on your lactase, uh, genetic tolerance or whatever you would call it, the uh, lactose tolerance gene. Yeah, the persistence gene. So, um, so yeah, so there are some people who might definitely benefit from yeah. trying to match their, their direct ancestor diet. But I'd say for the majority of the population, especially those who have mixed heritage, you can really just kind of 
you know, model it after the, the overall rules of an ancestral diet, and you really should be okay. I don't think you have to do anything too extreme as far as following what your, you know, your grandparents would have eaten. Yeah, and I think, you know, this is kind of the whole idea behind an ancestral paleo type diet is that, you know, we're looking at all of these traditional cultures and how they ate and the similarities. That's what we're kind of taking away from it. Um, and pulling those things that we, we find that everybody did to stay healthy. Um, and that's, you know, part of what Weston Price did with his work, of course, is just to find what everyone was eating that seemed to make the biggest difference for them health wise. And I think that's, you know, that's what we're all, we're all after here. We just want to try to incorporate the most nutrient dense and important foods that we have been eating for forever, Yeah, you know? So I think that's great. If anyone's really interested in this stuff, which I definitely, I love learning about it. Like I said, I really like eating random <laughs> ethnicity <laughs> foods, like things that would never have been something that my grandparents would have eaten. But there, this, the, like you were saying with Weston Price, his original book from the 1940s is called Nutrition and Physical Degeneration. And it's really cool because every chapter is a different country that he visited and he would analyze the traditional diet and look for the commonalities and look for, you know, how come they could all be eating such different diets and all still have really robust right. health. And I think if people are interested in learning more about, you know, what the basic tenets of a ancestral diet are, that's actually a really good place to start because it is raw data. You know, he did go to those cultures, which mm -hmm. a lot of them don't even exist anymore. Um, you know, I talk about these traditional diets and like I said, I'm making a lot of, um, what's the word, generalizations based on research that I did. And, you know, people may feel that areas of the country that they live in, say if they live in Scandinavia or if they live in East India, maybe they feel that their, you know, their culture isn't eating that way anymore. So lots of stuff has changed and a lot of food practices have been lost thanks to some, you know, misguided public health campaigns. But um, I think if you're interested in learning more about the variety of diets that humans have thrived on in the past, that that book is a really cool resource and it's really interesting. I mean, there's a lot of like dry data in it, but the overall gist of it is really interesting. Yeah, it is. And I, yeah, I agree. That's a really good place to start if you're wondering about, you know, the most important things to, to consume that we've been consuming forever that have really made our health thrive for a lot of these traditional cultures. Right. And the, I mean, I'm sure people won't be surprised to find that a lot of those foods are things that Americans don't eat anymore. So right. that's what Kelsey, Kelsey and my mission is, is to kind of make people aware of what the actual nutrient dense foods are and to promote consumption of things that might not be so, you know, common or palatable like gelatin or bone right. broth or organ meats that kind of bone stuff. Bone in fish right. like we were talking right. about you know that's not something that a lot of Americans eat now and of course when we're moving to a paleo type diet you know we're, we are losing some calcium that we might have had before if we were you know eating a lot of dairy so it's just important to make sure you're kind of getting those those really nutrient dense foods that maybe yeah we've forgotten about over this um over the evolution of of our cuisine. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's amazing to me, even things like chicken skin, which, I mean, I can't imagine not eating the skin on chicken, but... Right, so Yeah, good. so I, I just know so many people who are disgusted by chicken skin, and it just, it's like one of those things that 
people believe so strongly that it's so bad for you. And, you know, when you're getting it from a properly raised chicken, it's actually a health food. So it's like, why would you, why would you want to go through life eating like, you know, chicken breasts and skim milk and all that stuff? It just sounds so horrible, but yeah, boring. Yeah. Anyway, so (laughs) hopefully our listeners are still, you know, made it to the end of this extra long podcast, but hopefully you found that interesting and I'll link to that book that I recommended in the show notes. So you guys can check it out if you're interested. And again, I would love to hear, you know, if any of you have any stories about traditional diets and, you know, if you have any food culture that you've held on to or that you've kind of resurrected based on your heritage, we would love to hear about it because, you know, I, I don't particularly eat a lot of ethnic food. I mean, I guess German food is not too different than standard, like I said, meat and potatoes, but I I always love hearing about people's food practices. So if you have any stories to share, please share them with us because I love to hear about them. Yeah, that should be an interesting conversation in the comments. So please, please chime in with your experience. Yeah, cool. Well, thank you for joining us, everybody. We hope you're enjoying the podcast. And if you are enjoying it, we would really appreciate it if you could leave us a review on iTunes. And if you're not enjoying it, then I would assume you're still not, or you're not still listening at this point. So again, we like to hear your feedback and feel free to leave any comments in the, you know, on Chris's site and keep submitting your questions. They've been great. And Kelsey and I are really enjoying getting to talk to you guys about nutrition. So we will see you around next time. All right. Take care, Laura. You too, Kelsey. 